Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at HL. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And Sarah, it is that time of the year when we have made and probably broken already quite a few New Year resolutions. Let me summarise where I failed so far this year. My determination to run every day ended in the first week, unless you count running up and down the stairs every morning trying to get everybody out the door. And uh, cutting down on my cheese intake, my excuse was that I didn't really want to waste the Christmas leftovers. I can't resist a bit of blue or manchego to cheer up the dull January days. And of course, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, not to pair it with a dash of red wine? (laughs) Well, that just all sounds fair enough to me. You know, I'm a firm believer that you only start food-related resolutions when all the quality streets are finished. Um, And so, obviously, we've we've still got lingering strawberry cream, so we're fine for now. But this year, financial resolutions have been top of the list for me. So my first resolution was to give up top-up shops because, you know, when you go to the supermarket and you end up coming out with a, you know, trolley full of food, I'll have to let you know how it goes and how my family adapt to a week without Cocoa Pops if I forget them. Yeah, muesli isn't really that much for a substitute, is it? Anyway, there are, of course, plenty of people who use this time of year to make financial resolutions. And in our recent survey, almost half of people said they were making financial resolutions this year, with the most popular to save more and spend less in order to build resilience. And that's what we're focusing on in today's podcast, our financial resilience and where we stand right now, just what it means for the way we're going to save and invest in the months to come in an episode we're calling Reading the Resilience Barometer. We'll be talking to Nathan Long, a senior analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been working very closely with the experts at Oxford Economics to build the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer. So Nathan, this isn't just another survey, is it? It definitely isn't. It's a huge piece of analysis. It brings together 16 separate measures from various official data sets and uses modelling to build an overarching picture of people's financial resilience, for example, from how much savings they have to whether they're on track for a reasonable retirement income. Uh, It shows us where people are vulnerable and the gaps in their finances. Uh, It's also a model that we can use to see the impact of big changes in the world around us. So, for example, at the moment, the rise that you'll be getting in in mortgage rates... And our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lundy-Yates, is here as usual to tell us about some companies who have relatively diverse income streams to help increase their options as times get tougher. Sophie, there's quite a mix here this time around, isn't there? Hi, Susanna. Yes, we've got everything from fast-moving consumer goods to healthcare and a financial business. Thanks, Sophie. We'll look forward to finding out more shortly. And Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, will be speaking to Daniel McDonough, Head of European Portfolio Management at Perford International. And in a bit of a departure from our quiz, as a fresh start for the new year. Instead, we're looking at one of the more unusual stats for the week. But first, let's set the scene. So we know that persistent inflation has been squeezing household incomes until the pip squeak and that rapidly rising mortgage rates in the wake of the mini budget tightened the squeeze on anyone looking to buy a new home or a mortgage. And we also know that inflation in 2022 was led by increases in the price of day-to-day essentials. So food and non-alcoholic drink continue to feed inflation up over 16% in a year, while housing and household services were up almost 27%. So it's no wonder that the ONS found that 6 in 10 people are worried about keeping warm at home and around three quarters are worried about the cost of living. A big part of the picture is that wages aren't rising to keep pace with inflation. Inflation is running at double digits, but 
Average pay growth for state employees stood at just 2.7% in the year to August-October 2022, compared to 6.9% for the private sector. This problem has tipped over into waves of industrial action, with the transport network slowing to all but a standstill, with mass walkouts of rail staff and highways employees. It's a precursor of more disruption to come, with healthcare workers planning to cease work in protest again as the fight between public sector staff and the government intensifies. The stage is set for a pretty fraught year for industrial relations as unions bed in for the long haul and the government seems determined to resist demands for now. Now, all of this is having a knock-on effect on businesses too. The pain of the hospitality industry is set to be prolonged as town and city centres are set to stay emptier for longer, which will be particularly onerous for the crucial lunchtime and after-work trade. And then the pressure on our household budgets also means we're changing our shopping habits, which is taking a toll on businesses too. So the ONS statistics show that the most common response to rising prices was to spend less on non-essentials. So two thirds of people are spending less. And meanwhile, almost half were shopping around more and spending less on food and essentials. So it means businesses are trapped between the rock of rising input prices and the hard place of hard-pressed consumers. Well, this feels like a good time to bring in Sophie Lundiates, who's been looking at companies with more options in time times, specifically those with diversified operating models. So tell us more about this. What do you mean by that? So one of the benefits of a company which offers diversification is that these businesses can perform better over the long term. So not being overly reliant on one product area or service. And this can help smooth bumps in the road during tough economic times. Now, of course, as ever, please remember that, that nothing is guaranteed. One area that can offer broad product diversification is big, fast moving consumer goods or FMCG companies. Now, these tend to offer a lot of consumer staples. <laughs> my dog getting involved there so aren't too reliant on people spending discretionary income it's always good to have a dog on the podcast sophie but first up tell us more about a u.s consumer giant that you've been looking at so firstly i was looking at procter and gamble um, which is u.s listed so png operates through five segments beauty grooming healthcare, fabric and home care and baby feminine and family care It also has a lot of geographical diversification with its products sold in around 180 countries and territories. The group's brands include Herbal Essences, Pampers, Gillette, Fairy, Tide, Always, Sanitary Products and a whole host more. The group's biggest area by revenue is Fabric and Home Care which makes up 35% of annual revenue. Now, last year, Procter & Gamble had total net sales of $80.2 billion and operating profit of $17.8 billion, giving margins of around 22%. Now, by offering so many staples, revenue is a bit more reliable than some other businesses, and that helps the group pay dividends. And please remember that no dividend is ever guaranteed. Now, as always, it can't all be good news. And the biggest challenge facing Procter & Gamble is the higher cost environment, or as we all know it, inflation. So ignoring the effects of exchange rates, first quarter net sales rose 7%, with the vast majority of this coming from price increases that it was passing on to its customers. Now, that demonstrates that customers are willing to pay more for Procter's famous and trustworthy brands. However, if inflation doesn't start to temper, there will be a limit to how much the group can inflate its prices without seeing volumes drop further than the 3% dip seen recently. So interesting. We'll be keeping, as always, a close eye on inflation. And what about banks, Sophie? 
Banks can be a great way to gain exposure to different geographies. They tend to be economic bellwethers for the regions they operate in, meaning they have broadly tracked the ups and downs of the wider economy. Now, if a bank has exposure to more than one region, then in theory, one area can help pick up some of the slack when others are struggling. Now, one UK-listed bank with major exposure to overseas economies is Standard Chartered. So Standard is first and foremost an Asian bank, with Asia making up $1.1 billion of the group's $1.4 billion quarterly operating profits. Within that, though, the group also has hundreds of billions reliant on other countries across Europe and the Americas and the Middle East and Africa, which adds diversification benefits. The other diversification benefit is the breadth of banking products Standard offers. So it has large exposure to financial markets, banking products like macro trading and issuance services. There's also wealth management and transaction banking in the pot alongside traditional retail banking. This is a model we're supportive of because it helps spread risk. Now, it might not be a surprise to hear that at the moment, high exposure to Asia is causing some challenges non-cash impairment charges relating to a weaker economic outlook more than doubled to $227 million in the third quarter. So impairment charges can be when the value of an asset is is written down or its, its value is lowered, or it can be provisions that are put aside in case a higher number of people default on their loans. Now, more than half of this related to Standard Chartered's exposure to the struggling Chinese commercial real estate sector. Now, together with wider recessionary risk in Western markets means ups and downs are likely in the short term. Risk, which has been recognised in a price to book ratio of 0.46, which is some way lower than the 10 year average and shows that the shares are currently trading below the value of Standard Chartered's assets. And Sophie, what's the final stock you've been looking at this week? Well, it's another trip back over the pond to the US where I've been looking at life science and healthcare giant Danaher Corporation. So Danaher designs, manufactures and markets professional, medical, industrial and commercial products and services. Um, Essentially, its various businesses offer products and solutions for everything from consumer packaging, drinking water purification, supply chain standards, including checking the consistency of pharmaceutical products, all the way to scientific healthcare research and technology. Honestly, I think it would be faster to explain what this company doesn't do. Now, these might not be the sort of essentials you and I think of, but they're precisely the types of things big companies, pharmaceuticals, universities and medical schools need to pay for. That's especially true in today's more risk-aware and forward-planning corporate cultures. Now, the group has quarterly revenue in the region of $7.7 billion, and underlying core sales were up 10% in the third quarter, which is testament to the essential and diverse nature of the business model. Danaher's net debt pile of $19.6 billion seems on the high side, which is worth keeping in mind. Um, The price to earnings ratio of 25.5 also suggests the market has taken the group's strength into account and has high hopes. So that means that any shortcomings, like if the group were to miss analyst expectations, is likely to evoke a stronger than average reaction. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Sophie. Some really interesting businesses there to watch in tougher times as consumers get more and more stretched. Those figures Sophie used are from Refinitiv and are correct as of January the 3rd. It's also worth looking a bit closer at how we're all being affected by the cost of living crisis and perhaps even more importantly, at what the future holds in store. And that's something that's explored by the third instalment of the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer published this week. So let's bring Nathan Long back in, who's been getting to grips with the data. So Nathan, it paints a pretty grim picture of where we stand right now, but who's particularly struggling? 
the overview from the barometer this time around is that our, our financial resilience has dropped markedly. So the average household score out of 100 dropped from almost 65 at the end of 2021 to, to just over 60 a year later. So that's, that's eaten into around three-fifths of the boost that we got during the, the pandemic from things like um, lockdown savings where we weren't able to spend on the same things as, as we were before. Uh, within this, though, there's, there's a huge difference between higher and lower earners. So those on lower incomes were hit harder because they spend a disproportionate amount of their income on essentials. Uh, that essentials have seen a much higher inflation rate, we think around about 12%, compared to around 6% inflation rate for non-essential spending. The barometer looks at how much of people's spending went on the essentials. And for, for these low-income households, the burden of essentials was far greater. So at the, at the same time, they were less likely to be sitting on any extra savings built up during the pandemic. So that when we hit the end of 2022, households with less income than average were actually in a worse financial position when it comes to savings than before the pandemic hit, compared to those who were earning more than average who continued to sit on this, this savings cushion. So for those with no savings left, it starts to raise the, the risk that this year we'll see more people on lower incomes taking on unaffordable levels of debt. So it does look pretty grim, but it's not only those on low incomes who are affected. There are, there are other groups struggling, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And there's, there's, there's quite a lot of detail in our barometer. But a good example is that we sort of see much lower scores for single people. So both with and without children who have, are having to make a single income stretch further than perhaps two incomes within a household. So only 13% of single person households without children have very good financial resilience, but that compares to 41% of couples with no children. They're almost three times as resilient. Some of the detail in the barometer also shows that people who make financial decisions with their partner tend to be more resilient than those who, who just make decisions alone. So having that sounding board seems to help people find the, the right solutions, particularly during these tougher times. We're, we're also sort of aware that it's harder for renters and for younger households, as you may expect. And that tends to be because they have less in savings and they've got lower incomes on average. So that's where we are now. But what about what lies ahead, Nathan? The good news is, is that the squeeze is expected to be past the peak. So we think that happened sort of as of now. So the future looks a bit rosier. The barometer looks at when spending becomes unsustainable and forces people to either cut back spend their savings or or borrow a bit more and whilst almost two in five people were in this position at the end of 2022 it's expected to gradually fall back to just under a quarter at the end of the year so it's still a significant chunk of people to be wrestling with their costs as we go into 2023 but it's going to fall back i guess the less positive news is that the squeeze we've had so far and the squeeze that's that's coming all have a cumulative effect. So, so people who are struggling now may spend more and more of their savings or see their borrowing mount. Now, compared to before the pandemic, overall, we're slightly better off on average. But those on lower incomes have less in savings than before the pandemic. And those on higher incomes have more. And one notable trend is that we're starting to see those on middle incomes uh, becoming squeezed too. So which it's going to have an impact on them personally, of course, but it's also going to have an impact on businesses that they interact with in terms of their change behaviour. So the barometer also lets you model the impact of external changes too, doesn't it? Like the rise in mortgage rates. Yeah, it does. So um, those who need to remortgage this year face doing so really at significantly higher interest rates. So it's going to wreak havoc both on their savings and also their debt. So we've 
measured that their savings and debt resilience scores are forecast to drop by around three points. Uh, They're also going to face far tougher challenges than people remortgaging after the end of the year when we're expecting mortgage rates to have fallen back. Uh, They're expected to only see their resilience scores drop by around about one point. It also models the impact of falling house prices, although an awful lot will depend on, on just how far and fast prices fall. It's not just going to affect people's confidence in their immediate financial position. It will also damage their longer term plans, uh, particularly for those working age households, with the scores for being on track for a comfortable retirement forecast to fall by 1.4 points for homeowners compared to only 0.2 points for renters. These falls are particularly striking amongst Gen Z and millennial homeowners who tend to have borrowed more to buy when house prices were higher. Well, thanks, Nathan. That's really interesting insight. And I know more details are going to be released on the impact of remortgaging on resilience later this year. So I hope you're going to keep us updated. Of course. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Love to love to come back. Thanks, Nathan. So it's now time to bring in Emma Wall now, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL. And she's been speaking to Daniel McDonough, Head of European Portfolio Management at Perford International. Hi, Dan. Hi, Emma. So 2023, a new year, and I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out as much as you can. It was a difficult year for markets last year. Although the FTSE 100 did okay, the rest of the world, both equities and bonds, had a very difficult time. No guarantees. But what are your expectations for 2023? Well, it does feel quite bleak, doesn't it, going into 2023? And I guess the expectations are going to be somewhat dependent on on how sticky inflation proves. So the more persistent inflation is going to be, the longer higher rates are going to have to persist. When you include the fact that the monetary policy that we've seen towards the back end or, or the second half of 2022 acts with a lag, it means the full force of the current tightening cycle may not have been felt yet. So it's going to take a while for those increased borrowing costs to fully work their way through an economy via refinancings and and remortgagings. Then the fact that real incomes are also being squeezed, it all points to a possible recessionary environment likely in in 2023. Having said that, we do recognise that the market doesn't always move precisely in tandem with the real economy. Um, It sometimes leads it. And with China opening up, it will be interesting to see whether that's a, a good thing because it adds to aggregate demand or whether that's going to be negative for global markets because it's going to add to the inflation problem. And you've mentioned the dreaded R word there, recession. It's a difficult balancing act that central banks like the Federal Reserve in the US and the Bank of England here in the UK have to tread now, isn't it? Because they want to raise rates and keep rates higher to combat inflation. But of course, if recession does rear its very ugly head, then that's very difficult to continue to raise rates in a recessionary environment. Actually, the pressure then becomes on them to start cutting rates, doesn't it? So what are your expectations around interest rates and and, and how recession plays into that? It does look as if rates are going to have to continue to rise because one thing seems pretty clear, the battle against inflation hasn't been won yet categorically. So while rates will continue to rise, what has been noticeable in the last 12 months is that the enthusiasm with which rates are being raised by various central banks has differed. So the Fed has been leading the way. It has been the strongest and most hawkish in that sense. That means probably that they have done a lot of their work already and and may mean that they've got less to do in 2023. 
if you look at the European picture, both the ECB and, and Bank of England seem to have been much more reticent when it comes to raising rates. You can understand why the economic conditions there look a lot more vulnerable and fragile. So they will continue to do so. But the sense that we get is central banks really are doing the absolute minimum possible in Europe, trying to get away with when the inevitable recession does come, that that doing a lot of the work for them in taking the steam out of the market in terms of how fast prices are rising. Now, resilience is the sort of other R word for 2023 because we've got this challenging backdrop. You, as a professional investor, run a fund which has multi-assets. So you have lots of opportunities to go into different asset classes, to equities, to bonds, to cash, in order to sort of balance a portfolio and really build resilience against whatever the market throws at you. Again, nothing's guaranteed, but that's the aim of the fund. And it, and it managed to do that through 2022 against a challenging backdrop. How are you now thinking about the positioning between those asset classes in order to weather whatever storm is coming? Well, we were cautious throughout 2022, and that cautiousness is not going to go away um, anytime soon. And I guess the way that manifests itself in the portfolios that we look after tends to be a very conservative positioning in both the equity and the bond side. On the bond side, that means having a low duration portfolio. So a portfolio of short dated bonds that are not that sensitive to interest rate rises because we are expecting more of them. We want to insulate the portfolio from any damage that that does to valuations. So you've got to be a bit discerning when it comes to the bonds in our opinion. On the equity side, we have seen a reversal in most equity markets, not all of them, but most in 2022. Does that mean that we are primed for a new era of, of significant growth? Not necessarily. You know, Valuations seem to be certainly not at the bottom end of historical ranges. And as we've already discussed, the economic backdrop is quite challenging. So again, in the equity space, you need to be a little bit discerning. And what we have chosen to concentrate on is what we would regard as quality uh, equities. Now, by that, we are talking about equities with strong balance sheets so that they're not as exposed to the rising uh, cost of debt as other companies might be. Companies that are high quality in terms of being able to have pricing power, so being able to raise prices, which is obviously much coveted in an inflationary environment. Um, and that general defensive uh, combination tends to hold up well if the economic and market financial backdrop uh, is challenging. Can I quickly ask you about cash, both from a professional point of view and if you don't mind a personal point of view as well, because for such a long time, cash was just not an attractive asset class. Now you can get, although it's not inflation beating, but three, four, even five percent on cash. I mean, we have a savings platform at HL as well as an investment platform. And some of the fixed rates actually are looking quite compelling, more compelling than they have done certainly for the last decade. How do you think about cash? You're right in the sense that cash is usually seen as the, the poor relation in terms of versus equities or bonds, because over the long term, certainly equities are what you would expect to provide um, the bulk of investment returns for most portfolios. But in this environment, cash, as you say, has the benefit of being able to give a positive nominal return, if, if not a positive real return, which is more than can be said necessarily for both bonds and equities in, in a challenging stagflationary environment. So from that perspective, you know, cash has its place in the portfolio and it also gives you a lot of visibility in relation to, to what you would get in a in any given year, um, which obviously is not necessarily the case with those other asset classes. 
Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was Emma Wall, Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL, speaking to Daniel McDonough, Head of European Portfolio Management at Perford International. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now it's time for our exciting new features, Sarah, the stat of the week. And, well, you all may be expecting something striking from the news. We'll endeavour to trawl less familiar corners of the financial world. And this week, it's a gem from the sales figures Aldi announced over Christmas. Altogether, sales were up 26% in December. Now, some sales were affected by huge inflation within certain categories, which helped propel cheese sales up 50%. But particularly notable was the rise in sales of crisps and nuts, which were up around 40%, which it put down to the fact the Men's Football World Cup coincided with Christmas sales. Well, I think I supported all of those cheese sales, but it does seem that crisps were the flavour of the month. They really were this Christmas. I could certainly vouch for that at our house, although I can confirm that if you're ever about to buy tortillas that are shaped as Christmas trees and flavoured with a turkey and stuffing, then you'd be better off saving your money. It certainly sounds like it, and podcast listeners will know by now that we're all about the quavers in our house. Although this time, Santa didn't throw 100 packets down the chimney, but we managed to still consume an awful lot. Well, I have actually been saving a quavers-related Christmas cracker joke for you, so do you want to hear it? Go on, go on. I'm not sure I can avoid it at this stage. (laughs) Okay, so how do you eat quavers at twice the speed? I don't know. You break them in half, so they're semi-quavers. Oh, that's terrible, Sarah. I think after that, there's nothing else I can say. So that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we of course need to remind you that this was recorded on the 9th of January 2023 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You to seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. This is not a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment. And investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Nathan, Sophie, Daniel, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.